such as the um, so good morning. So if you've heard me talk any time in the past five years, the chances are you heard me talk about Israeli history or Israeli politics. For the past five years, I've taught at Katz Yeshiva High School, the history of Israel class, and that definitely has become the focus of my education over the past few years. However, what I want to learn with you today is what I would deem my first true love in Jewish history, and something that I studied as a student at Stern College for Women as part of their honors program under the um, guidance of Dr. Lauren Schiffman and Rabbi Richard Hittery, if you're at all familiar with the Second Temple period. So what we're going to learn today, like I said to you, is where my love of Jewish history really began, and it may seem very, very ancient, and as I just told my two student, students now, what Rabbi Kroll deems boring, even though I really disagree with him. Um, what we're going to learn today is about the Second Temple period. So in order to do so, we need to first look back at Jewish history and understand the time period we're discussing. So obviously, as you know, there were two temples that stood in Yerushalayim. The first Beit HaMikdash was destroyed in 586 BCE um, by the Babylonians under the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar. And 70 years later, the Second Temple was constructed. The Second Temple lasted until 70 CE, meaning it stood for about 585 years. So when I'm saying to you that we're going to discuss the Second Temple period together, your immediate response should be, okay, well, that's actually a very long period of time, Holly. So what are we actually focusing on? So to give you context, we're going to focus on about the period of 180 BCE, and this should be your trigger when there is a Jewish family in leadership called the Hashmonaim. And as you saw from my title, what we're actually going to be learning is partially about the Hanukkah story today, and I promise you it will relate to this time period by the end. So during the period of the Hashmonaim, a book was written called the Book of Ben Sirah. Ben Sirah is also called Sirach or Ecclesiasticus, if you've ever heard of it, not to be confused with Ecclesiastes. The author of the book was a man named Jesus Ben Sira, not to be confused with another <laughs> Jesus, although he'll come up later in, in our talk today. Um, it was just a popular name at the time. So the book of Ben Sira is actually what we're going to the underlying theme of our class today. And has anyone heard of Ben Sira? Okay, good. I'm amazed that people have. I'm like so excited. So Ben Sira is a book of 50 chapters comprised of ethical teachings. The idea behind Ben Sira is that you as a Jew need to live by certain principles and certain have a certain moral system that defines you separate of just ritual. And the reason that Ben Sira in the past 75 years has really been studied by Jewish academics is because of the findings recently or in 1948 at Qumran. So those of you who have been recently or at, you know any time in the past 25 years to the Dead Sea. Um, you may have stopped at Qumran along the way. I find very few people go to Qumran just for itself um, and rode some camels there. But what happened in 1948, obviously coincidentally the year that Israel was declared the Jewish state, um, but what happened at Qumran was there was a Bedouin boy who was just throwing rocks in the desert and he accidentally threw or threw some rocks into this cave and instead of just hearing the rocks go into the cave he heard a hollow pinging sound and he walked in and walked into what is I mean in my mind the greatest discovery of the past hundred years which were 
a multitude of original Jewish texts from the period of the Second Temple period, from one of the sects. Um, it's unclear which one, of the time of the Second Temple period. And within Qumran, there were original Hebrew manuscripts of Ben Sira. So what invigorated the Jewish academic world is this is the first time that we have the original text of this amazing Sefer. Also, around the same time period, there were archaeological excavations at Masada, in which we found similar texts, and the Cairo Geniza. And so what we're going to learn today is the book of Ben Sira and what it tells us about the Jewish people ourselves, what it tells us about the Jewish people in relation to other religions at the time. And last but not least, I'd like to draw a very strong connection between the Second Temple period and Jewish life today. So let's get started. The time of the Hasmoninians, or Chashmonaim, was a prolific period. There were books and Sfarim being written left and right. So it's by no means unusual that Ben Sira decided to sit down and write this Sefer. Um, but we have to actually look at the development of Tanakh in order to understand his perception of what he was writing. So by 180 BCE, we obviously knew the five books of the Chumash. That was obvious to the Jewish people. But the books of Nevi'im had also been canonized by that point. We knew which books were to be considered in the Nevi'im part of Tanakh. However, in 180 BCE, the part of Ketuvim was actually open still. The rabbis had not decided which books, which Sfarim being written, were to be part of Ketuvim. There was no concept yet of 24 Sfarim in Tanakh because Ketuvim was still open. And actually, probably the Jews of the time never envisioned, or many of them didn't envision, that Ketuvim would ever be closed, that it would ever become canonized, and that the books being written was could be pretty fluid, and whatever was divinely inspired or seemed to be by the Jewish people, maybe that could be added one day, or maybe what was ever applicable to the people at that point could be part of our Tanakh. As I said, obviously this changed over the next few hundred years in which the canon was completed and we ended up with our 24 Sfarim, but at the time that Ben Sira wrote, he may have actually envisioned that the book of Ben Sira would be included in Ketuvim and considered part of our Tanakh. But either way, he intended for this book to be to be read by the Jewish people, this 50 chapters of ethical teachings. And he wrote this book in order, chances are, because he saw something happening among the Jewish people that precipitated a need for him to write a book of ethical teachings. And so I think in order to prove this, the best way to do so is to study the Hanukkah story for a few minutes together. Um, you're going to hear a few of my biggest problems with Jewish education today, but one of them being how the Hanukkah story is taught. And if you ask my four-year-old son who was the Hanukkah story between, he'll tell you not that four-year-old education is the barometer for Jewish education, but he'll tell you Greeks versus Jews. Um, and I think the, truth is the same is probably true of my high schoolers in many ways. Um, would that be true, that Greeks versus Jews, the Hanukkah story? So... While that's not completely devoid of truth, that the Hanukkah story is Greeks versus Jews, the real Hanukkah story is much deeper than that. What was happening during the period of Hanukkah is that the Jewish people were becoming fastly assimilated and buying into a new type of thought called Hellenism, or Greek secular thought. Hellenism was infiltrating the Jewish people. And so much so, for example, that the Jews were becoming much more fluent in the language of Greek than Hebrew itself. And they actually ne needed the Bible to be translated from Hebrew to Greek. And this is no offense to any shul that has an English translation, but that definitely demonstrates something about the level of education and the level of connection of your people at that time. And 
Hanukkah happens in which this family of the Maccabees look at what's happening to the assimilation of the Jewish people and they say this is unacceptable for our future. And the story of Hanukkah is the Maccabees fighting against the assimilation of the Jewish people, of the infiltration of secularism with the aid of the Greeks. So it's not that the Greeks were completely separate of the Hanukkah story, but the real story of Hanukkah is a civil war about the infiltration of secularism, which in my mind is a completely different message of just non-Jew versus Jew. And so what does this tell us about Ben Sira? Ben Sira is watching this infiltration of secularism, watching Greek influence taking over, and he feels this need to write this book of ethical teachings. Now, it would be unfair to say that it's secularism versus religious thought thinking because that would not be true of Ben Sira. In Ben Sira, and I think this probably makes it more relatable to us today, he talks about, for example, proper etiquette at a banquet. And a banquet is clearly Greek in nature, so it's not that we were completely, you know, Greek versus Jew. It was how do we as Jews live an ethical, moral, religious life within the Greek world? How do we take Greek thought and participate in the ways that are appropriate and separate ourselves in the ways that are not. So this is where the twist comes in, is that in the second temple, after the second temple period is over, or towards the end of it, our Tanakh is canonized, as you know, and Ben Sira is not included within our Tanakh. However, fast forward a few hundred years, and if you look at the Christian Bible, Christians include it in their Bible. The book of Ben Sira, this book written by a Jewish man during the Second Temple period, is canonized within the Christian Bible. And I know it may seem very odd to you that we're about to go into Christian history at a Yomiyun, but I promise you by the end of this, this will seem, it will be relevant and hopefully enhance our own understanding of the development of Judaism and what it means to be a Jew in today's world. And the questions I'd like to explore with you right now is how is it possible that Christianity, which is so diametrically and theologically opposed in many ways to Judaism, how is it that this book of Ben Sira seems to transcend those differences and be included in the Christian Bible and not included in our Bible, even though we as Jews consider it authoritative in some ways? So, so it's actually the Jews of the middle like of the middle evil period took very close measure to not quote Christian texts which we'll talk about in a second because of fear of what that means when we're trying to obviously make ourselves distinctive from one another, and yet they still quote Ben Sira. So Ben Sira falls into this unusual category, which I'll speak about in a second, of still being quoted by the Jews of the time, even though it was in the Christian Bible. That's what makes Ben Sira unusual. Um, but you're right, it was. it's part of a general idea of books that were not included, but are still important to us. Um, so here's what happens, is that we just mentioned that during the period of the Hashmonaim, that the Jews were becoming assimilated, and the Bible was translated, our Chumash was translated, and Nevim, from the Hebrew to the Greek. This is called the Septuagint. And the thing about any translation is it's a very any translation becomes a commentary on the original text itself. And so my second message I think about Jewish education is the importance of Hebrew while we're studying. And my Hebrew is by no means worth uh, worthy of any um, sort of praise, but 
there is something to be said about studying the original versus a translation. When I was a student at Midrash at Lindenbaum, otherwise known as Bravenders, it was a very um, popular tactic of the teachers there that when we were studying the original Hebrew, everyone had to have open a different translation. And what always was, put, you know, the message that was continuously put into us is that a translation is a commentary, that no English translation can properly and sufficiently capture the message of the Hebrew. And so even though a translation allows us accessibility to the text, it also diminishes somewhat the message of the original text. Um, and so anyway, around this end of the Second Temple period, obviously this man named Jesus decides to break off from traditional Judaism, although he himself considered himself a Jew at the time. And he begins teaching these new, this new religion that was taken over by his student Paul. Um, and Paul decides in order to make himself, make his religion more accessible to the people of the time and to convince people to convert into his new sect of thinking, that using the Greek translation would make the religion more accessible. And so Paul, who obviously is one of the founders of, the, of Christianity, decides to adopt the Septuagint. So how does this all relate? Because 200 years later, a, the Christians have gained obviously tremendous dominance in the world, and many people have now become part of the Christian religion, except now the Christians are more fluent in the language of Latin. And so they hire this guy, Jerome, who you may have heard of, and they say, can you take the Greek translation of the Septuagint and translate it to the Latin? And Jerome's like, fine, I'll do that. And he sits down with the Septuagint and he's like, okay, it doesn't really make sense to use the translation of the original. Let me go back to the original Hebrew. And he goes to the original Hebrew and he's horrified. Not only are there textual variations between the Hebrew and the Greek translation that even the Jews of the time had used. And the most, you know, the most famous example is in Yeshiyahu, in which our version calls the woman an almana and the Christian version calls her a virgin. And you can think of the theological repercussions of that. Um, but not only are there textual variations between the translation, between the translation and the Hebrew, there's actually like book book problems in that there are books included in the Septuagint because remember Ketuvim was still being figured out when that Septuagint was written there were books included in the Greek translation that were never in the original Hebrew in the end meaning Ben Sira and this is I think what you were referring to those books in like academia or, or in the Christian religion are called the Apocrypha the books that are not in our 24 Svarim in our Tanakh but are included in the Christian Bible and so just to summarize at this point the Jews are experiencing this period of tremendous assimilation, tremendous infiltration of secular thought. And Ben Sira writes this book in contrast or in almost like in a Musser teaching to the Jews, you have to live ethically. And he writes this book to be studied. It's not included in our Jewish Bible, in our Jewish Tanakh for whatever reason. The Christians, however, look at this book and they include it in what they're studying. So the questions we really have to ask ourselves again, what is it about this book that speaks to both of us and what is it we can learn about who we are as a people. And so what's more interesting, even that the Jews didn't include Ben Sira, is the fact that Ben Sira is continuously quoted in our Gemara as an authoritative work of some sort. And so in our Gemara, there are dozens and dozens of, of attributions or psukim of Ben Sira that are in our Gemara. And I'm just going to read to you two to give you an idea of what Ben Sira is talking about. Um, there are rules in the Gemara, like honor physicians for their services, because Hashem created them. Them. 
it's not a ritual, but a general principle that we have to honor people who have studied in order to make us more healthy. Um, a second one is a daughter is a secret anxiety to her father. And, <laughs> and worry, this actually, I was thinking this when you spoke to me this morning. And worry over her robs him of sleep. When she is young, for fear she may not marry, while a virgin, for fear she may be seduced and become pregnant in her father's house, or having a husband, for fear she may go astray, or married, for fear she may be barren. Not particular, I mean, just something that is something we may be able to relate to. I have a daughter as well, so um, I, I get that. Debbie literally said this to me this morning. Um, and so Ben Sira is quoted in the Gemara as this authoritative work. And there's actually a line in the Gemara that's definitely an, an exception, but they call Ben Sira to be part of Ketuvim. Nobody actually thought Ben Sira was part of Ketuvim, but he obviously wrote somebody something important. I would be remiss without telling you, though, that Ben Sira is only quoted very openly in the Bavli. During the period when the Gemara was being compiled, there were two major Jewish communities, the Babylonian community and the community in Yerushalayim. So obviously that leads to the um, compilation of the Bavli and the Yerushalmi. The Bavli openly and freely quotes Ben Sira, has no problem talking about this affair, but there's also the Bavli community is not, the Babylonian community does not live in close proximity to the Christian community. So they're probably not really scared about what that means. The community in what later becomes Israel or the Palestinian community of the time where the Yerushalmi was compiled is very, very careful never to quote Ben Sira by name. Instead, they referred to him as a rabbi says and this ambiguous terminology. They like, I mean, any academic now is like, okay, we know who you're talking about. But at the time, living in close proximity to the Christian community, which really it strengthens our question, by the way, they're very hesitant to quote Ben Sira, which is what I was referring to you too, that why is it when we're so terrified of Christianity at that point, are we going out of our way to quote the Sefer? And number two is no other book of the Apocrypha is quoted as freely as Ben Sira. Why are we risking something? We're scared. What does it mean for our Jewish people if we're quoting this Christian Sefer? And Christians at the time, like people were scared that they would leave Judaism in order to become Christian. Why are we doing this? What are we risking for? What are we risking this for? And again, the question, if we're theologically opposed to one another, how do we both agree on this book? And so what I'd like to suggest to you, and this is what I definitely owe credit to um, Dr. Schiffman and Rabbi Hittery, is that there's a concept that becomes relevant for this story and for this time period called Judeo-Christian values, which has recently been in the news. Um, Judeo-Christian values is a term that only became used in, about, in about the past hundred years. And what this means is that we know that Judaism and Christianity are theologically not the same. There are many obviously differences in what we believe from one another. However, what we both believe is in an all-powerful being that we need to live up to an objective moral standard. Obviously, as you know today, there's a lot of talk about objective morality versus relative morality. And we as religious people, whichever religion that may be, believe there is an objective right and wrong. And we both need, we both struggle with how do you do that given today's world? 
why was this term, if this term exists, that we share some sort of value system with the Christians, why did it never come into, like, why did nobody say this term before 100 years ago? Because prior to 150 years ago, our fear was that Jews would become Christians, and Christians' fear were that Christians would become Jews. If you look at the writings, for example, of the Ramban, the Ramban is involved in numerous polemical papers in order to differentiate Jews from Christians. During the medieval period, we are scared of what it means if we have any similarity with another religion, because again, the idea was that if you're not Jewish, you may convert to another religion, and they're just as scared. Well, if you're not our religion, maybe you'll convert also. And obviously, I would be, again, remiss by leaving out there's a physical fear during the medieval period if we don't actually adhere to another religion that we're physically in danger. So what changed now? Why, why is this suddenly a term being discussed now? I'd like to um, actually quote George Orwell, who spoke about, or just mention him, who spoke about the idea of Judeo-Christian values. He was one of the first real thinkers who spoke about this term. And um, are you guys reading this in high school right now? 1984. Yeah. Okay. Somebody's reading it. Um, 1984. So what's 1984 talking about? Yeah, I think probably everyone's heard of it. Um, 1984 is talking about a critique of the rising political powers of the 20th century, like totalitarianism, fascism, Nazism, communism, um, probably stuff you all remember from your history classes. And what's different about what starts in the 1900s is fascism, communism, totalitarianism. Those are secular ideologies. And for example, if we look at the Soviet Union in the 1900s, what happened to the Jewish community there is not that they converted out of Judaism for another religion. They converted out of Judaism for no religion, which, again, my, I've been learning a lot about Israel now, which is why you have conversations about the Soviet Jewish community, the 1.6 million Jews, 25% of whom are not halakhically Jewish, who moved to Israel. Because the new threat in the 1900s was no longer another religion, the new threat was secularism. So why does the term Judeo-Christian values only become spoken about in the past hundred years? Because now we're both scared. Now, Aristotle coined, you know, thousands of years ago, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. No one is saying Judaism and Christianity are the same thing. We're not. We're theologically not the same. But now what are we both scared of? We're both scared that our 20-year-old children, you know, our 20-year-olds are going to college or going out into the outside world and saying, Mom, I'm not religious anymore. We're not really scared our kid is going to come back home and be like, oh, I'm becoming a Christian, uh, despite the story out of Chicago this week, if you read but did you follow there was a missionary who like dressed up in the Jewish community um but but we're not really scared of that anymore if you look at the numbers out of the non-orthodox population Jewish population 71 percent of Jews are is are intermarrying these numbers are incredibly incredibly high and for somebody who cares about the future of the Jewish people these are scary numbers and so I went to the University of Central Florida two weeks ago and the Hillel is a massive, massive building, building, and they actually rent out half their space to the Catholic religious organization. And that is something that we should, that is historically unheard of. Because again, 200 years ago, Catholics and Jews having this harmonious relationship in which they share a building together would be obscene. But today, why is the Hillel able to share a building with the Catholics? Because they're fighting the same fight. They're not fighting the kids at UCF joining the one or the other. They're 
fighting the kids not coming at all. And so what makes today different is because we're both scared. We're both scared about the threats of assimilation. We're both scared about the threats of what it means to be a Jew in this of this entirely new world. And so now I'd like to look back 2,000 years ago and think of Ben Sira. Ben Sira is sitting there. He's looking out his window. He's probably crying watching the infiltration of secularism. And I imagine this man terrified of what it means for the future of the Jewish people. And he sits there and he says, I'm not going to write a book about ritual. It doesn't matter to people about the halachot of Shabbos or Kashrut if you don't buy into the worldview of what it means to be a Jew. If you don't buy into the underlying principle, if you, even as Mrs. Kanner said earlier, if you don't buy into the character, the derech eretz, if you don't buy into a Jew acts differently than when they walk into a space, we hold ourselves to a standard regardless of, you know, the specific principles. You have to buy into the worldview. And he writes this 50-chapter book in which he says to the Jewish people, don't worry about the particulars at this moment. Worry about what it means to be a Jew at all moments. When you go to a banquet, it is Greek in nature, but you are still a Jew there. You hold yourself to a, an idea of objective morality, and we hold ourselves to a higher principle, even regardless of the exact little particulars. And so why is it that Christians so comfortably include this in their Bible? because it's not a book about ritual. It's a book that seems to talk about just how a religious person acts in their everyday life, how a religious person purports themselves. Again, it's not about the specifics of Sniut, for example, but how do we buy into the concept of modesty? How do we listen? What kind of music do we listen to? What are the general ethical principles that guide our everyday acts? And so what can we learn about this story? What are my takeaways from Ben Sira? Number one, when we learn about the Second Temple period, it should not be boring. There is no generation that is more connected in my mind to what is happening today. The link to 2,000 years ago is so strong. We both are fighting the same fight. We are both worried about the same thing. And 2,000 years ago, I know history classes tend to become like, well, it's history. What's it have to do with us? You should not be fooled. The Second Temple period is as relevant as they come. And even more so than that, the Hanukkah story, the Hanukkah story is, should be more relatable than ever. It is relatable because what the Maccabees were fighting is what we are fighting today. We are fighting the infiltration of secular ideology and trying to stand up for what it means to be a traditional Jew. And what should be inspiration to, inspirational to us about the Hanukkah story is they're successful. They win. They're able to fight back. And we shouldn't look at the Jewish people, 71% of non-Orthodox Jews who are intermarrying and say, oh, sorry, can't help it. That's the modern world. Because guess what? 2,000 years ago, they had the same fight and they stood up and they made a difference. However, again, I, we need to look at the history. What happened after the Hanukkah story, if you know Jewish history, is a period full of sectarianism. And so with standing up comes a divide sometimes among the people and we need to be careful we are one Jewish people and if you again know about the second Beit HaMikdash many people people attribute the destruction of the second Beit HaMikdash to Sinar Chinam and many people translate that into like I spoke Lush and Hara about my friend which may be part of it but Sinar Chinam really was that these different divisions within the Jewish people could not coexist together so with the standing up for traditionalism is remembering we're all still one part of the Jewish people and so what I'd like to end with now is actually um, 
how this relates to this time period. So a year and a half ago, I gave birth to my son, and his name was Chaim Yehuda. And he was not born on Hanukkah. So at his bris, Chaim is after my husband's grandfather. Um, if anyone knows Chaim Feuerman, who's very involved, who was very involved in Jewish education. Um, but the name Yehuda. So my part of his of my speech at his bris was that the name Yehuda was after Yehuda Hamakabi. And I spoke about how I hope my son fight, fights for and believes in and stands up for what we as Jews believe, despite what's happening around us, and that he's able to act as a religious Jew, whatever context he's in. And I thought it was a very nice speech, but many people came up to me and they were like, it's like a beautiful message, but it's not Hanukkah. I don't know if you know. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I, I know. Um, I was aware. But the idea is, is that Hanukkah has to transcend those eight days, that when we're in Spirat HaOmer and we're thinking about what it means to be a Jew, the message of the holiday can't only be for eight days a year. And the message needs, message needs to be that in May 2019, we're thinking about what we learned from that, that holiday and what we learned from our history. And so what I want to really bring home today is that I know some people, literally, as I was walking here, somebody's like, I want to come, but it, it's not Hanukkah. And I'm like, I know. Um, <laughs> But but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that it's not Hanukkah because the message is the same. So I, that's really how I'm ending today. And I'm happy to continue the discussion, but I'm going to stop the recording. Um, so thank you.